0: Hello everyone, welcome to Red Flag Radio, a revolutionary socialist podcast from Australia. Today we're talking about revolutions in the 21st century, And there have been lots of them, actually.
1: There have. And we're going to be joined a little bit later by Hossam El hamalawi He's a socialist and a journalist who took part in the uprising in Egypt that overthrew the hated dictator there in 2011. Um, And they say never meet your heroes, but whoever says that should really get some revolutionary socialist heroes because meeting Hossam, uh, whose writings I followed really closely during the revolution, was an absolute treat.
0: Uh, We learnt a lot from him. We did. Um, We're recording this podcast on Gadigal land. Uh, Land that was stolen, never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land.
1: So, before we play the interview with Hossam, we did want to talk about revolutions in the 21st century more broadly. Um, I've often heard people say that revolutions are a thing of the past and, you know, mass revolts and things like that are are really something that belongs to the 20th century. Um, You know, people often learn in school about the Russian Revolution and, and, and moments like that, or the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, but maybe don't know so much about the more recent history, very recent history, literally currently happening, some of it, uh, of revolts and revolutions in the 21st century. Um, Often these revolts kind of come in waves. So 2011, you know, the the famous Arab Spring um, included countries like Egypt, Tunisia, Bahrain, Algeria, Yemen, Syria, uh, probably more I've forgotten. and and it had widespread implications beyond the Arab world as well. Like it was very inspiring for well, people, left-wing people all over the world, but you know, if you were part of Occupy Wall Street, um there was a lot of talk of the the Arab Spring there or the movements of the squares uh, in in Spain. A lot of the the later stuff against austerity in Greece, I think, you know, still drew some inspiration from the Arab Spring. And more recently, Um, 2019 was a big year for revolts and revolutions as well. Um, We had Hong Kong, you know, like hundreds of thousands of students and young people, especially participating in these really um, dramatic, you know, showdowns against the the Hong Kong police on university campuses. Uh, We had Chile, again, millions of people involved in strikes and student occupations and high school students playing a really important role there. Uh, Lebanon, Algeria, Iraq, Sudan, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> Bolivia, I've definitely forgotten some. Um, and actually, even through the pandemic, there have been revolts. Um, so Belarus in 2020, Myanmar um, and Colombia in 21, Sri Lanka even uh, last year. And of course, this year, I think we've seen the return of like really mass impressive uh, revolts, things like the Iranian revolution and and the massive um return of class struggle in France and Britain.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things looking at some of the revolutionary waves that have broken out in the 21st century is the surprise uh, <laughs> that uh, the capitalist class receive uh, when these uprisings take place and that's a feature of the revolutions that have broken out and revolts and uprisings in the 21st century. Also all through history that, you know, both on the capitalist class's side they can be rudely shocked by um, you know, very arrogant attitude towards the masses, the fact that actually revolutions can come seemingly out of nowhere. But even the revolutionary left themselves can be quite surprised by Mm. um, the anger that can suddenly be unleashed that was kind of growing under the surface of society. Um, There was a really uh, interesting (laughs) uh, article from The Economist that came out just two weeks before all of the uprisings of the Arab Spring broke out. Uh, and you get a bit of a sense of just how arrogant the capitalist class and ruling class, particularly the Western ruling class, can be towards the global South and um, the you know, Middle East, um, where they said uh, that Arab democracy, a commodity uh, still in short supply, uh, because most people are inured to authoritarian rule as just a fact of life. So, just two weeks after this is proclaimed by you know the most preeminent bourgeois newspaper, um, you know one of the most uh, inspiring uh, revolts breaks out. Uh, challenging authoritarianism and really the structures of Middle Eastern capitalism. Mm.
1: I highly doubt The Economist withdrew that that article <laughs> with an apology, but, yeah, that was pretty common, especially that kind of, yeah, racist and demeaning uh, idea about the Arab masses, that they just love their dictators and, you know, are, are obedient. That was uh, really, that whole idea was kind of blown apart by the Arab Spring and actually since a whole a whole bunch of revolts in the Arab world since, like I mentioned, even Iraq, which was destroyed by, you know, American and Australian and British imperialism for uh, well over 10 years, has had serious revolts in the last um, few years. And there's a few general themes that I think emerge in all of these revolutions. Um, We'll talk about some of the negative ones, the counter revolutions in a bit, but I think it's worth um, acknowledging just the incredible confidence that it immediately gives to millions of people just by participating in in these revolts and uprisings and people who, you know, weeks prior would have never thought that they would be involved in mass protests or leading mass protests end up being yeah, at the centre of them. And you really see this with a lot of women in revolutions. You know, it's particularly obvious in Iran where women are really leading the, the revolutions, but there's... um just awesome images as well, like from Sudan in 2019 where the, the image of Allah Salah uh, standing on top of the car, you know, a young woman, I think um, 19 years old or 20 years old, uh, speaking to crowds of, of thousands of people and leading the chance and she became a really iconic um, figure across the world in 2019. Um, there's other, other instances where it kind of just gives this obvious um, confidence to the masses. Like one of my favourites is from... Uh, Sri Lanka in 2022, so last year, where, you know, hundreds of people streamed into the palace of uh, Rajabaya Radhapaksa once he had to step down, and they just made themselves at home. They are having a great time. They're, like, drinking his whiskey. There's uh, an <laughs> image of him all- Swimming in his pool. working <laughs> out in his gym. Um, yeah, swimming in his pool. And like just to see this guys' unbelievable riches that he had um, he had ac- accumulated while the masses of people in Sri Lanka are struggling—it's like in one of the worst financial crises uh, crises of the country's entire history—and these guys are just living it up. So it would have been just so cathartic, I think, for protesters to to stream in there and um yeah do whatever they wanted.
0: Yeah, I think when you see these kind of uprisings and revolutions break out. They really prove a point that socialists make all the time, often, you know, just referencing historic examples, but that ideas can just change really rapidly during mass radical struggle where, you know, millions of workers are participating in it. So, you know, reactionary ideas that can seem so ingrained into a society taken up by large sections of, you know, ordinary people can suddenly be just shown to be so wrong um, overnight. So, um, you know, one of the big things in the Egyptian revolution was the kind of sectarian religious divisions that were very deliberately stoked uh, by the regime, Um, you know, they just started to fall away through the unity of the masses in struggle. So there's, you know, um, really famous scenes in Tahrir Square um, of Coptic Christians who had, you know, often been, you know, the target of the regime, um, you know, hostility towards them stoked up praying in Tahrir Square, you know, while rows of Muslims surrounded them um, to defend them while they prayed. And this was a very clear political message of unity and a political message to the regime that we will not be divided, that we have recognised that this kind of division um, is just a a core part of how any capitalist state uh, holds on to power. And countries that you can think they have gone through such a period of intense and violent divisions, how could these divisions ever be overcome? It can just be so shocking how quickly they can in a revolutionary moment. Like Sudan in 2019. This is a country that has had one of the, you know, most horrific genocidal wars against the minority population. One of the chants uh, during the big Sudanese protests in Khartoum was we are all dafur. This is referring to, you know, a people who the military had, you know, carried out this genocidal wave of violence against. So uh, people very consciously wanted to Um, show solidarity with the most oppressed uh, people in that society. And that's just a theme that comes up time and time again.
1: Yeah, another central theme we've kind of touched on already but it's worth drawing people's attention to is working class involvement in these revolts and revolutions. And it's something that's always downplayed, I think, in, in the media and in most accounts when you read about these um, these things, unless it's just so obvious, like in France where it's, it's just mass strikes, you know, uh, called by the unions and carried out by, uh, by workers. But in the democratic revolts or, what you know, that as they're often referred to in um, the Arab Spring and in 2019 as well, you see mass uh, working class involvement. Um, actually, Hossam will talk about it. But you know, in Egypt, the again, this wasn't really widely reported. But really, the I think the people who are most um, uh, you can attribute the start of the revolution to most clearly are the um, the textile workers in Mahalla. This massive textile uh, industry with like tens of thousands of workers, most of them women, uh, who had been struggling began to struggle against the regime in a more open way. They were the first people in Egypt to really to really do that on a mass scale, to say we want the fall of the regime, not just we want our, these particular economic demands. So I think they contributed massively to kicking off that revolution, but then also to giving it the kind of incredible strength that it had to actually force sections of the ruling class to step down to force Mubarak uh, from his position as dictator, you needed the kind of industrial strength of of those thousands and thousands of workers.
0: And it's interesting, even in some of the revolutions where um, working class participation has not been as high, it's one of those things that layers of protesters can start to be conscious of, we should have some of that, we should have more working class participation. Like the protest in 2019 in Hong Kong were widely, widely supported, widely participated in uh, by workers, often, you know, not as strikes, but participating in protests, definitely led, at least initially, by, you know, students who occupied their universities, engaged in extremely militant confrontations with the police that were um, very widely supported by, you know, broad sections of society. A lot of those activists became conscious that, like, what we kind of need is a general strike, <laughs> um, and there was a whole, you know, flourishing of trade union membership across Hong Kong during that period of the kind of democratic struggle. Um, uh, and you know, unfortunately, that's something that was uh, missing in terms of like a ongoing strikes. Um, there were some strikes, um, uh, you know, by uh, white collar workers, and there were some strikes by healthcare workers at different points. But it was something that it just becomes palpably obvious when you're persis- mm. participating in a revolution that actually this is the, the big power, the power to actually bring uh, capitalism grinding to a halt, to you know, bring industry grinding to a, to a halt. Um, and so that's a feature in many of these revolutions, but it's also something that it can just become so clear that that is the divide, It's also where the power is.
1: Well, on to some negative uh- traits that a lot of these revolutions and revolts have shared over the last couple of decades, and that is um, the counter-revolution. You know, we have to admit most of these have not achieved their demands, um, and many of them have been really crushed by brutal counter-revolutions, but I think it is worth saying that a lot of the time, the key figures who lead the revolution down the wrong road and are able to wind it up um, and and sap it of its strength are not the most brutal, psychopathic, parts of the ruling class. It's not necessarily the military um, and, you know, the old regime that's able to do that. The people who are most able to get a handle on a revolution and bring it to an end are the kind of liberal um, reforming parts of the the capitalist class and the middle class. And parties like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, you know, play this really uh, important role for the ruling class. They, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood was kind of handed power to be the caretakers of this supposedly new revolutionary government after 2011 um, but was you know carried out because it's a bourgeois capitalist party carried out all the same kinds of policies that had pissed people off in the first place that had made them want to make a revolution against uh, Mubarak and so the military were cleverly able to use that um, to say well this isn't working we need another coup we need a a full-on counter-revolution and we're able to Um, you know, sort of split and and end the revolution uh, in that way. And that's something we see over and over again is basically sections of the elites posing as the uh, guardians of the revolution but really being the um, the harbingers of its death.
0: Because I think every revolution that breaks out, even if it doesn't consciously raise this as a prospect, opens up the possibility of a general challenging of capitalism overall. Um, and no revolution really begins, including the Russian Revolution, with the demand, let's fight for socialism. Uh, you know, revolutions do uh, begin demanding we want democracy, you know, we want the fall of the regime, you know, we want general broad demands around, you know, economic justice, um, you know, it was bread, peace and land was the demands that started the Russian Revolution. Um, but they do pose the possibility of challenging it and can radicalise throughout struggle where people uh, decide they want to fight for more. I think one of the limitations is there's always going to be those forces within a revolution that want to limit it to, you know, the masses, you know, thank you very much for overthrowing that dictatorship, (laughs) but now, you know, leave it with the experts, Um, you know, we're going to, you know, set up maybe a civilian government with a bit of liberal democracy. Um, Not only does that leave the situation open to just full-blown counter-revolution, but also, um, you know, we want to fight (laughs) for more than that, we want to get rid of capitalism altogether. Um, and I think that that is one of the things that's been missing. We need to, you know, rebuild the international socialist movement. And I think in countries where you've seen the most working class participation, there are little glimpses of, you know, what where that things might go in terms of uh, not just challenging a dictatorship, not just challenging some, you know, immediate economic grievance, but actually, you know, getting to the heart of capitalism altogether.
1: I think one problem as well is the role that those, uh, those forces, the you know reforming and liberal forces, can play in just stopping the actual revolt, which is the the heart of the re- revolution. I mean, it sounds kind of obvious, but like people out in the streets and strikes and working class forms of democracy, those things are what actually drives the revolution. So the second your uh, a movement becomes convinced to stop all of that and wait for change from above uh it opens up a, a shift to the right at the very least if not open counter revolution i mean that's what you've seen in Chile since 2019 right like the right have been able to make hey uh, while the sun has shone uh since the end of the the kind of big uprising and protests there um and has has basically shift been able to shift politics in chile way to the right um and actually maybe even create a worse constitution than they already had um so th- this is again the problem once you take away the the fire of actual mass participation uh you can end up with something even worse well i guess it's worth saying i like none of that is inevitable i mean you already mentioned chloe that you know uh every revolution has faced these problems uh has faced the a potential counter-revolution, has faced false friends in the form of, you know, liberals and, and reformists um, and has also started from less radical demands than than they kind of end up with. Um, so that's not a new problem. It's something that all the revolutions of the 20th century uh, faced as well. Um, but there are kind of limitations that make it more likely to, to end up the way a lot of these have in the last 20 years, right? Um, One of the obvious ones is just um, working-class people not being central enough to the process. Um, And one thing that you can get in a lot of these countries, you know, where often probably the majority of participants are working-class, you know, like some of the stats in Lebanon in 2019 were that 20% of the population was like out in the streets. So most of those people are going to be working-class, but uh, that's very different to the working class being in political leadership, a a position of political leadership within the movement where their demands and their strategies, which are about strikes and working class democracy, that those become central. Where they don't become central, yeah, you I think, more likely to find that middle class organizations and parties um, can lead things astray or can, you know, wind things up before anything is really won.
0: Yeah, and try and find a compromise with the existing um, state, either by getting into it, um, by negotiating some power sharing deal um, or something like that. Um, And kind of constantly their role often in the movement is basically um, lowering the horizons of what working class people want to fight to. So it's one of the kind of ironies of like winding up the Egyptian revolution that like, what's the best way to wind it up? Call an election. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, you're probably likely to get an outcome that is not some, you know, radical uh, uh, party, but one that actually pretty quickly wants to put a stop to kind of any form of struggle. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, it poses a question of insurrection, actually um, even revolutions that are fighting for, uh, you know, originally for a, a limited question of democracy. Actually, how can you carry out that out with the existing setup, with the existing capitalist state? You uh, know, in, in, in a lot of these countries, it's the role of the military, um, the political elite, generally all of the bureaucracies of the state. Um, and for socialists, we want to talk about you know replacing that whole order with popular democracy from below, with you know workers' councils, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's been missing. We've seen you know glimpses of you know self-organization, mass strikes. Um, you know, things like Tahrir square, people coming together to uh, try and, you know, set up something like, you know, uh, a democracy from below. Um, but that really is, you know, the thing that would start to pose an alternative, not just to dictatorship, but to, you know, the whole setup of, of capitalism in the state.
1: Yeah, it's a recurring thing, isn't it? That the it's quite easy to get rid of figureheads in these <laughs> in these revolutions, and often you have these wonderful dramatic moments where Mubarak steps down in Egypt or uh, the Rajapaksas step down in in Sri Lanka. But underneath all of that, you still have the exact same ruling class operating in exactly the same way, with all of their control of the economy and the state apparatus. So unless you're going to challenge that, and usually that means that means challenging both the state and the economic stranglehold of those forces on on um on capital and on, on the economy, uh, you're going to end up with the exact same system, you know, um, possibly for a period a more liberal-looking face of it, um, potentially an even worse and more grim-looking uh, face to it as well uh, if there's a successful counter-revolution.
0: But as we'll hear from Hossam, um, you know, even revolutions that end with defeat, and there's obviously, you know, been a lot of them. Uh, they show a glimpse of what is possible when the masses come out and start fighting, um, you know, uh, to to challenge the system um, overall. And I think those lessons um, of, you know, the revolutions past, what the masses are capable of, where things um, went wrong, where we have to go in the future, actually hold the prospect because, um, of what we do next time, because there will be more revolutions in this yeah. 21st century. Definitely.
1: Though, it's a it's not over yet, the 21st century, um, and all of those economic and political reasons that drive revolts, uh, they're not getting better. They're worsening, really, and I think they're engulfing more of the world. I mean, you look at Australia and the cost of living crisis here, you know, people are suffering um, some of the worst economic conditions that they have in, in decades in this country, uh, and, you know, Western Europe and and lots of places that haven't really had the kinds of revolts and revolutions we're talking about are now experiencing conditions that could lead to them eventually. So, I definitely think all over the world there's more revolutions and revolts on the horizon. The question is, how are you going to make sure that the working class uh, and radical revolutionary socialist politics are at the heart um, of those revolutions when they do break out? And that's why, as Hossam will talk about, and as we often talk about on this podcast, uh, you need to build revolutionary socialist parties in every country and there's so many times in these revolts where you just think if there'd been a big uh, revolutionary socialist organization that could have argued something different to the masses at this point or that point things could have been different not saying bam you would have won it's all easy it's not easy to overthrow capitalism but certainly you could have gotten a lot closer than uh, some of these revolts did.
0: Hi Hossam, thanks for joining us today to share your experience as a revolutionary in Egypt during the Arab Spring. Um, Before we dive into talking about the revolution itself, I thought we could start by talking about what it was like to live under the dictatorship of Hosni Mubarak um, and how did socialists um, and workers more generally organize under those circumstances?
2: Um, I think I can divide it into two time periods. Um, The first would, uh, for me, of course, I mean, out of personal experience, would be the 1990s uh, all the way to the year 2000. And then the second phase would be from 2000 till 2011. In the 1990s, um, the situation was really horrible, whether it's for whether we're speaking about political organizing in general or to speak about leftist politics and industrial politics uh, in specific. So around the time when I started to become politically conscious and, and looking for alternative as a teenager, the Soviet Union had already collapsed in, the 19, uh, in 1990, 1991. And this officially signaled the end of the third wave of of Egyptian communism, Islamism uh, had the upper hand at the time, whether it's on university campuses or um, professional syndicates. And the Islamist movement back then were divided roughly or crudely into two um, two streams. Uh, one was represented by the reformist Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which opted for the Islamization of society, whether via taking part in elections, taking part in parliamentary elections, kind of like reformist leftist politics, to be honest. Uh, of course, with huge differences, but I'm talking about the tactics. Um, and the second branch or the second stream was the armed militant Islamists represented by the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and the Gama Islamiyah uh, at the time. Um, They launched an insurgency in 1991-1992, around that time. And this was when I was at high school uh, uh, in Egypt, in Cairo at the time. And Egypt declared, or Mubarak's regime declared, a war on terror. Um, But what many Middle Eastern politics or Middle East history analysts or pundits Tend to ignore is the fact that our war on terror was declared simultaneously with the implementation of the RSAP program or the Economic Reform and Structural Adjustment Program, which was the new neoliberal uh, uh, package that Mubarak had agreed on under the sponsorship uh, uh, of the World Bank and the IMF. Because back in, if we go back in time a little bit, when the 1977 uprising happened, this brought to halt the neoliberal program at the time. And the government kept procrastinating with the neoliberal reforms and didn't have the courage to, to go on the offensive once again, except with the war on terror and comrades if we actually look around the world you know um, with the experience of 911 and elsewhere you will always find that wo- counterinsurgencies and wars on terror wars on drugs wars on crime and what have you they usually go hand in hand with with austerity programs with neoliberal reforms because this usually gives the state a free hand uh, to militarize its its domestic police forces and to take a bare knuckle tactics or bare knuckles uh, approach towards any social dissent um, that could result from the implementation of such austerity programs. And this is what happened in Egypt. Um, as a teenager in the 1990s, I felt that I was under occupation. Um, Most of the streets had police checkpoints um, that were heavily armed. Um, They used to stop people randomly in the streets and snatch them, and then they would disappear. Um, The government went in and nationalized, basically, in effect, all the professional syndicates. The trade unions in Egypt, which were not independent to start with, but um, more restrictions were placed on them, uh, industrial actions uh, plummeted completely. There wasn't really much industrial politics uh, uh, at the time. Um, the government might have started its onslaught against the militant uh, wing of the Islamist movement, but then, like all wars on terror, you know, the the, the repression starts to spill over uh, uh, to other sections of society. So, reformist Islamists were targeted. Um, Industrial politics were basically met uh, on occasions with live ammunition and strikes were crushed by the police special forces, which are similar to the SWAT teams that you see in the West. Um, University campuses remained relatively free, relatively. You could organize on campus, but you had a ceiling, you could not speak about Mubarak, you could not whisper Mubarak's name at the time. At best, you can chant against the regime, you can chant against the government, you can um, slam a minister, uh, and of course, you know, you can denounce the US, you can denounce Israel, but once you start opening your mouth about Mubarak, that's when you know, shit would hit the fan right away. Um, and and it's not like you were completely protected on campus because, you know, after the protest is over and after the day is over, you have to leave campus and go home. And that's when state security police, which is our version of the FBI or the Gestapo, to be more accurate, you know, used to raid our homes at night, uh, snatch people, torture us, and what have you. So this was the 1990s. These were really, really very rough times uh, uh, in the 1990s. But the turning point uh, came in the year 2000 with the outbreak of the second Palestinian Intifada. Um, The Palestinian cause has always been a a strong radicalizing factor for Egyptian youth uh, across the decades, not just under Mubarak. So. Comes the second Palestinian Intifada, and this would launch or, or this would mark the second phase, basically, of our lives under Mubarak. Um, a huge wave of protest engulfed the, um, uh, the university campuses at the time, and the government basically went in and crushed it uh, uh, ruthlessly. Uh, this was, for example, my the first time I was detained and tortured by state security police was the year 2000 during this wave of arrests. Um, and the protests died or subsided a little bit, only to be revived once again in March, April 2002. And this was when Sharon uh, Ariel Sharon sent uh, his tanks into the West Bank cities, and that's when you had the infamous massacres in Jenin and elsewhere. Uh, This triggered a uh, two-day strong rioting and and protests in Giza, uh, in the vicinity of Cairo University, and it was dubbed as the Cairo University Intifada uh, at the time. And I recall this was the first time in my life that I would hear um, uh, slogans, uh, explicitly anti-Bubarak slogans. Um uh, I I like thousands had the courage at the time to, to start chanting Husni Mubarak Barak is just like Sharon, he's the same color, he's the same figure. Um now all of these years of continuously organizing and continuously trying to uh uh like grab a margin where we can freely organize in, um, started producing results, Uh, meaning in 2004, the Egyptian opposition got together and we launched uh, the Kefaya movement, which Kefaya is Arabic for enough. And Kefaya was explicitly uh, against Mubarak and against the succession scheme that he was uh, uh, preparing uh, for his son Gamal uh, at the time. Now, this would, I mean, if if someone in the 1990s would have told me that, you know, we can organize a protest in the heart of Cairo uh, explicitly against Mubarak and his family, you know, this would have been completely insane. But thanks to years of organizing and thanks to years of fighting in the streets, we've managed to get this margin uh, where we can freely, relatively freely move. Now, Kefaya started organizing protests in in downtown Cairo mainly, but sometimes, you know, in other provinces like Alexandria and elsewhere. But generally, the Kefaya protests usually used to attract from 20 people up to maybe 1,000 on a very good day uh, no more than that. And it it never really left the middle class ghetto, as we called it. Um, most of the Kefaya members or activists were um, uh, university graduates, uh, students, uh, teachers, engineers, pharmacists, doctors, journalists, writers, artists. But Kifaya did not really create roots in, in the working class, whether the blue-collar or the white-collar uh, working class at the time. Uh, but Kifaya did something, which is electrifying the country uh, using very clever uh, and media-savvy tactics. How, how did that happen? Um, in any protest that we organized, no matter how small it was, We always ensured that there would be media coverage. Uh, We would contact in advance uh, Al Jazeera journalists and other satellite TV stations at the time. Um, At the time, private newspapers started mushrooming in Egypt and to have much more space uh, and a higher ceiling of critique against the government. So we were assured that even if It was a small protest that the visuals and the news of that protest would be transmitted to millions of other Egyptians and actually millions of other Arabs in the region, not just Egyptians. So when the industrial actions suddenly started with the uh, Mahalla textile mill in December 2006, uh, later, I recall that I, I was talking with uh, industrial um, uh, action leaders, and I told them where were you in 2004 and 2005 when we were organizing um, uh, all of these kefaya, small kafaya protests, and they told me that we we were in front of our TV screens watching those crazy kids burning Mubarak's posters in downtown Cairo, and we were looking at one another, you know, raising our eyebrows and in disbelief. And indirectly, this gave them the courage to start thinking, well, if those kids are taking on Mubarak, then we can take on our CEO in the factory. Um, That's how, like, you know, I mean, workers had started to You know, that's when the political was feeding the economic, but the economic was soon also to feed the political uh, later. How did that happen? I mean, as soon as the Mahalla strike started, and by the way, it started by women workers, uh, uh, this was the trigger. and then they scored a victory after 3 days' strike. It was over bread-and-butter issues. It was over like bonuses that uh, Prime Minister Ahmad Nasif at, at the time had, uh, had promised them and was trying like, to dodge basically his promise. Um, as soon as they won, they triggered by the domino effect a mass wave of strikes in the textile sector. All the textile sectors literally in the Nile Delta went on strike, demanding the same gains as those of Ghazl al-Mahalla. And soon the industrial militancy started spilling over to the other sectors. So you had the railway workers were going on strike. Um, You had the cement workers were going on strike. You had, I mean, everyone was was going on strike at the time, except for the military and the police uh, in Egypt, literally every single sector. These industrial actions were primarily over bread and butter issues. Um, One of the liberal dissidents at the time, uh, a a famous journalist, um, was cited saying, so all of this fuss over raising the food allowance by 12 Egyptian pounds, that's it? That, you know, thousands are going on strike for 12 Egyptian pounds? But, but here's the thing, you know, you have to read be, between the lines in order to understand the potential for how these things could evolve. Meaning, in a country where um, an emergency law was in effect and an emergency law would ban the assembly of more than five people. By the way, these are colonial laws from the time of the Brits. Um, and you have 27,000 workers, you know, getting together in order to launch a strike over bread and butter issues, they are in effect um, breaking the emergency law. That's a political decision, even if they are not conscious, you know, I mean, of it. Um, In a country where going on strike would mean Immediately, that the state would send in its forces of repression, primarily the central security forces, and you would still go on strike knowing that you might have to confront those central security forces. That's a political decision. Now, knowing going on strike over bread and butter issues, knowing that state security police might come at night and snatch you from your family and torture you for, for organizing this action and still you insist on going on with this action, that's a political decision. That's politics. What is politics? In a country where women are second or third class citizens, but still you see women uh, leading those industrial actions, and sometimes they would initiate it in the first place. And Egypt is also a very conservative country. Like, you know, I mean, the idea of a woman leaving her family house to sleep somewhere else, I mean, this is not really conceivable. But still, these women would leave their husbands and families in order to sleep in the factory that they have occupied under the same roof uh, with male workers Facing the risk of prostitution charges being leveled against them, but still they would insist on going ahead with the strike and challenging those gender roles, that's politics. In a country where Coptic Christians are second or third class citizens, but you find that in, in places where there is a substantial Coptic presence, that Muslim workers would elect Coptic workers to lead their industrial action. So, I mean, this is politics. You're confronting sectarianism here, religious sectarianism. Comes 2010, um, and that's when you had the infamous incident of the murder of an Egyptian youth named Khaled Saeed, who later became like the icon for the 2011 revolution. Uh, he was a middle-class Alexandrian young man, and he was brutally uh, uh, tortured and killed by the, uh, by the police. And this triggered uh, protests and anger in Egypt. But Khaled Sa'id was not the first one to die on the hands of the Egyptian police, and was not the first middle-class young man who would die on the hands of the Egyptian police. If this incident had happened in the year 2000, this would not have triggered the revolution. If this had happened in the year 2005, this would not have triggered the revolution. But here is where the subjective and the objective conditions also come in. You know, all of these things that we read about uh, in an abstract sense, you know, as Marxists in books, they were happening in front of our eyes. Now, by 2010, after an entire decade of struggles over all sorts of issues, Egyptians were getting uh, more courageous and more confident when it comes to facing the regime and the police. Uh, Egyptians were getting more experienced and have learned a lot when it comes to uh, strategy and tactics of organizing. and. There were informal networks that were springing up everywhere. So comes 2011 and we were ready for a revolution. Um, but if, if all of these triggers were happening and they were happening you know, a decade earlier, they would not have triggered the revolution. A revolution at the end of the day is, is an accumulative process. You know, that's what reformists usually tend to say. You know, no, the system is not going to change. We need to do some incremental changes. We say yes, but in a different uh, scheme, that the confidence of the masses, you know, it increases incrementally through the small wars and the small battles they engage in on almost a daily basis until this anger is accumulated enough so as to explode into a revolution. And they, we would be organized also enough so that this spontaneous outburst could be channeled and sustained in organized action later. And that's how we toppled Mubarak. The of the revolution has
1: Well, that is such a useful history, fascinating, um, and it combats that that sense that existed at the time in the Western media that this had just come out of nowhere. Um, there was a real sense of disbelief, I think, in the Western media. You know, they'd been used to thinking of the Arabs as a sort of quiet people who uh, loved their dictators, who were, you know, happy with their lot in life or too scared, too terrified to stand up against the regimes. Um, and it just seemed like, oh, suddenly, you know, they're out in the streets in their millions demanding democracy. But, yeah, it's very helpful to know about that, um, you know, decades long lead up and that nothing comes from nothing. And also for us here, you know, um, doing kind of similar things that small protests uh, and small campaigns can actually contribute to, uh, to some of those bigger, more radical, um, you know, even revolutions in the long run. Um, so, I guess we're at, you know, 2011 now, <laughs> you've gotten us there. So, I guess, you know, what really, so obviously you've said what lit the spark, but I was wondering if you could mention a little bit about the, um, the other countries, you know, this was a, an Arab-wide, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary wave. So, what were the, some of the connections between what happened in Egypt and what happened in places like Tunisia, Libya, Syria, etc.?
2: So comes 2010 and we all now are familiar, you know, with the events um, that sparked the revolution in Tunisia when Bouazizi set himself on fire uh, to protest the, uh, the actions of the police that, who were trying at the time to confiscate, you know, I mean, his source of living, which was the cart that he was selling, you know, I mean, uh, uh, stuff on. And this triggered mass protest in Tunisia that soon evolved into a revolution, and this provided for us in, in Egypt like a spark. The day, the day Ben Ali fell in Tunisia, I was in Alexandria, sitting at a, a local coffee shop, and suddenly, on the TV screen in the coffee shop, came the news that Ben Ali fell. People were clapping in the coffee shop. This is not an activist coffee shop. This is like an average, normal, you know, local Egyptian coffee shop. And people were clapping. And someone said, Mubarak is next. You know, and this guy is definitely not an activist. You know, I mean, he, he looked working class, you know, one of um, the, um, the people who were sitting at that coffee shop. So people could draw parallels right away. Uh, When we went back to Cairo, me and my comrade, and we were like, you know, started to think about like planning first, like, you know, a solidarity protest with the Tunisians. And, you know, we organized like, I think, a protest. This was before the 25th of January. And it didn't really attract that many people. And I recall on that day, I was interviewed by a BBC uh, British journalist who was very cynical. Like, you know, honestly, like he was very cynical and very dismissive. And I was like, you know, talking very passionately about how the Tunisians are a source of inspiration and we will be next. And the guy was saying, but you didn't, you know, gather more than like 200 people for your protest. And I remember his cynical grin. And a week later, you know, that's when the revolution broke out. And I remember the guy was like calling me on the phone and I was like, you know, hanging up on him. I didn't want to speak to him any longer. (laughs) And I was like, who's laughing now, you know, (laughs) asshole. And um, so comes the 25th of January, which is like Egyptian Police Day. And we decided to celebrate Egyptian Police Day by a protest. Um, We had already organized previous protests, anti-torture protests on Egyptian Police Day. But, you know, they never really attracted more than 20 people, 30 people, 50 people. And I recall also on that day, you know, some pundit was asking me maybe on Twitter in the morning, like, you know, so do you expect a revolution today? And I was like, of course not. No revolution breaks out by a Facebook event. Are you kidding me? And um, I, I honestly didn't didn't think that uh, you know this was a start of a revolution. Um, which you know, I mean, again, goes to show you whatever we as Marxists have been. Um, reading in, in an abstract sense, you know, I mean, what's happening? I I think I came across once like a story on uh, Lenin where he was like asked a few months or on the eve, you know, of the uh, revolution. And, uh, and he said that, I don't think that it's my generation that's going to witness the revolution. Maybe it's yours. And he was addressing like younger comrades. And, you know, a month later, you know, I mean, the revolution bro- broke out. So, I honestly did not expect that this was the start of a revolution. Um, so, and the Egyptian people surprised everyone on that day. Um, we, we had, there were several organizing meetings that took place before the 25th of January. And, you know, routes were planned, slogans were agreed upon, uh, tasks were delegated. And, The ceiling of the demands on that day was generally the demand to impeach the Interior Minister, Habib al-Adli, and to hold police torturers um, uh, accountable, especially those who murdered Khalid Saeed a few months before that. This was the ceiling. The ceiling was not the overthrow of the regime on that day. But by the end of the day, we were surprised that. Our calls for protest attracted tens of thousands of Egyptians. This was bigger than anything that we had seen in our lives at the time. And that's when the slogan, you know, I mean, a shab, you read the people want the, the downfall of the regime, you know, started like, you know, I mean, spreading like fire among everyone. But still, I was cautious. And my estimate was like, if we manage to sustain the mobilization till Friday, then we can start talking about like a real revolution, you know what I mean, happening. Uh, in case your listeners don't know, I mean, Friday is, you know, I mean, the holiday uh, in most of the Muslim countries. It's like Sunday, you know, in, in, in the West and elsewhere. And historically, uh, many of the mass protests whether it's organized by the Islamists or the leftists or what have you, they usually take place after the Friday prayers. Um, because mosques are centers where, you know, people get together and wherever the masses are, you have to reach out, you know, I mean, to them. And that's where bulks of the Egyptian population would be present. Um, and, on the night of the friday of rage this was on the 27th that's when they started shutting down the internet and that's when i realized this is serious i mean if they are scared enough to start shutting down the internet then this means that they are expecting you know like serious challenge and this Created some confusion, of course, you know, I mean, this telecommunication shutdown and they shut down the mobile phones and everything. Um, But we had already agreed on on the plan. Um, We all went to the Friday uh, mosques, you know, I mean, around us. And as soon as the, you know, the prayers ended, you know, we start like shouting, leading, you know, I mean, the people and charging from everywhere. And the meeting point that we had agreed upon was Tahrir Square. Um, but the route to Tahrir differed, of course, from one location to to another, but we were like a marching army that was taking one square after the other, one square after the other in continuous running battles with the police. And I've, I've seen heroic acts on that day that... If you see it in a sci-fi movie, you would not really believe it, you know, that there are people who are capable of doing this. And these were the same people that used to be described a decade earlier as cowards, as uh, pharaoh worshippers, as people who love tyranny, as people who are scared, you know, I mean, who, who have always been ruled by the whip. You know, and that's what they are used to. And, you know, you are dreaming to have a revolution. And it was really a very cinematic kind of like day, not just with the visuals, you know, of the clashes, but I recall that I saw on that day some of my friends whom I have not seen for years, and they used to, you know, make a joke out of me because I was talking about a revolution. And, you know, I was like always treated as like, you know, oh, the crazy, oh, you know, Hussam, he's crazy, but we like him, you know, he's... Yeah, I know, I know he's this insane communist, but, you know, he's still like, you know, I mean, a good guy. And I used to give them our underground um, newsletter at the time, you know, trying to sell the newspaper to raise money. And, you know, they would take it, they would go through it, you know, say, you know, like, it's good stuff, you know, good analysis, but this will never happen, you know, be realistic. And here they were with me, you know, shoulder to shoulder, and we were fighting the police chanting down with the regime and we were on our way to take over the capital, basically. So, yeah, that's what happened on that day.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, revolutions always uh, demonstrate the power of ordinary people, their collective power. So I was wondering if you have any more good stories about that. I know Tahrir Square was really the center of it in Cairo, but I know in Alexandria as well, You know, millions of people attended some of the big, um, essentially, occupations of the center of the city and protests there. So, yeah, what did you see that stood out to you in terms of the power of uh, working class people and ordinary people?
2: In Tahrir Square itself, um, in the beginning, there were no committees to protect the square in the entrances. And because there was no plan, you know, that's it. I mean, there was really no plan. Like, I, I recall that. I, In one of the um, uh, pre-revolution meetings, when when the revolutionaries were like planning the routes on, you know, what are we going to do on the 25th of January, the question came up from one activist. So what are we going to do when we reach Tahrir Square? And everyone started laughing because no one really believed that, you know, we will be able to reach Tahrir Square in the first place. And they were like, OK, you know, when we reach Tahrir, you know, we'll worry about it. And when the so-called battle of the Camels started, that's when the regime sent in, you know, it's criminal thugs mounting horses and camelbacks in, 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 uh, in scenes that looked like, you know, one of these like Islamic conquests or medieval, you know, crusades um, and the fighting started. That's when right away we started forming these security committees to protect the entrances to the square. People were. uh, we had to feed whoever was in the square. So we started forming committees that would provide, you know, food and beverages. We started collecting donations. We started to have like almost a mini press, you know, in the square to distribute leaflets. Um, The revolution brings out the best in people, really. In the same way that the same people, the counter-revolution brings out the worst in them, uh, like what happened uh, years later. Um, If we were big enough as revolutionary socialists at the time and capable of providing leadership for the uprising, this whole story would have ended on the 28th of January and you would have had a victorious revolution. But we were a smaller force at the time, a smaller force that became more influential you know, as the revolution progressed and as the revolution became much more radicalized. So even people like me who were against the army from the beginning, we were in a minority because the majority of the people still wanted to believe that the army would never open fire on the protesters. That the army is different from the police. That the army is not as corrupt as as the police. Uh, Let's give them a chance. Let's go back to normality. Most people do not like living in uncertainty. That's any ordinary human being. Most people do not want to live in a jungle. You want to feel secure. You You want to feel normal. Revolutions are a very exceptional moment in the history of nations. And I know that people maybe in Australia and in the global north sometimes romanticize about the global south that that's where, you know, I mean, the revolutionary spirit is. That's like, you know, where the uprisings, you know, I mean, happen. But when was the last revolution we had before 2011? It was in 1919, you know, almost like a century before it. So revolutions are always a very exceptional moment. And this opportunity does not come to you every day. So if you're not organized enough in advance, you will see it basically slipping and evaporating into the air afterwards. Because people, and Trotsky describes this brilliantly in his book, you know, The History of the Russian Revolution, there is a common sense. people till the very last moment, would still want a reform to happen so that they can go back to their normal lives. It's only a tiny minority that has the vision of what's next. So if this tiny minority is not like a substantial tiny minority, then you will end up with a defeated revolution, like what we've seen in Egypt and elsewhere.
1: Well, in the face of such a devastating counter-revolution that um, you know followed on the heels of 2011, I think it can be hard for a lot of people to hold out hope for radical change in the future. Presumably, that's a feeling a lot of people have in Egypt, uh, in particular, and across the Arab world. Um, and you know, socialists were often told we're idealists that all revolutions are doomed to end in tyranny like that. Um, so, as a revolutionary who's actually lived through a revolution, participated in one. Um, what do you think about that? Do you still have hope that you know, another revolution can happen? That we can win in the future? Uh, that change can really happen?
2: Revolutions are inevitable. Uh, their victory is not inevitable. Uh, Marxists always get accused, you know. I mean, of being deterministic and they believe in historical inevitability. But we all know this is like the Stalinist uh, crap. But what is inevitable? is a revolution why is this inevitable it's because capitalism is a system built on booms and busts when capitalism goes into a bust which is like a depression or an economic crisis naturally the ruling classes they start attacking the social gains and the uh, welfare of the working class and the other oppressed classes in society that's what happens. I mean, it is, it's science. It's, a, it's the natural law of capitalism. And it is very natural that in the face of this attack, that people would start fighting back. Now, the severity of the crisis might differ from time to time, from country to country. The methods that people fight back would differ from time to time. From country to country, but it's a natural law of mankind. You know, it's 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 that's what human beings do, you know, when they are in this situation. So no matter whether there is Hosam al-Hamalawi or Chloe or this or that or whoever, whether they are revolutionaries or not, whether we exist in life or not people will always find themselves in a position where they are left without really much choice but to fight back. Now, the point is, when, when this happens, will Hussam, Chloe and the others would be there and organized enough so as to carry the struggle forward? Or we would not be there so that fascists would be there to provide an alternative. Reformists would be there to provide an alternative that diffuses actually the militancy into nothing. This is where things are not inevitable, whether for victory or defeat. It's up to me and you and the other comrades And how organized we are so as to make this work. Do revolutions have to always end up in tyranny? My answer is no. Because basically, we have seen during a revolution when it happens, glimpses of the blueprint of the free society that we want to have in the future. You see glimpses of it you see glimpses of it, of people getting together and forgetting about the differences between, uh, between them. You see people fighting reactionary ideas that they have been uh, accustomed to for so long, whether like women are inferior or people from some color are inferior or people from uh, a different religion or a different sect is, are inferior. People overcome those ideas And this is what history has taught us. Um, So no, I mean the outcome of a revolution is not always inevitable. It's up to me, you and the other comrades, are we dedicated enough to the cause? Do we invest our energies in organizing and we are human beings at the end of the day, you know, and we have to understand that. There will be times that even the most militant comrades, you know, would fall into despair. Uh, the, there are The biggest challenge that faces any revolutionary, believe me, is not repression. It is fighting the common sense. The common sense that's behind you, that you're being socialized into since your childhood, tells you that this is the world. It will never change. And it has always been like that. You know, you know this animation, you know the Flintstones or whatever its name is? Yeah. You know, it is for me like the embodiment of this idea that I'm telling you about. It's the same nuclear family, you know, the father, the mother, and, you know, the son and the daughter. And there is the police station, you know, the police officer rides some dinosaur. And it's the same, you know, I mean, environment that we live in. And it exists from the Stone Age. We only just, you know, change uh, the outfits, you know, that we are wearing. But (laughs) again, you know, it's. This is the biggest challenge that we face. You're fighting against common sense. You you are a revolutionary and you organize, but, you know, you also have a family that you have to feed. You have work, you know, from nine to five that you have to perform. You go through your own, like, you know, depression and cuts and this and that. It's, It's not easy. So believe me, it's not the Australian Armed Forces that's stopping, you know, the revolution in Australia now. But it is the common sense that you are being groomed into and bred into from, you know, being just a newly born child up to, you know, adulthood. And if you believe that, you know, these ideas could be confronted and you are capable of doing that, then there is prospect for for a successful revolution. It's not impossible. We've seen it. We've seen it like in Egypt. We've seen glimpses of it in the industrial West in 1968 and and in other uh, occasions. And, you know, as Trotsky says, you know, the Revolutionary Party is the memory of the class. The ruling class always is trying to give you amnesia about our own history of struggles. And this is not just in the West. Like these racist ideas that you were talking about earlier about Arabs uh, being used to tyranny and the whip and this. These were things that I used to hear from Egyptians when I was uh, a student activist. And we would set up a stool, you know, and distributing leaflets, trying to win over people, to the cause, and people were treating us as, as lunatics. They were like, Egyptians, we built the pyramids. We have always been glorifying, you know, I mean, the pharaohs. We are used to tyranny. If you give Egyptians some freedom, this country will turn into chaos. You know, it's these same ideas that colonialists say about us, you know, people internalize it too. So no comrades, you know, you should not despair, not any every revolution, you know, I mean, it has to fail. If we are organized enough, then we will make it successful.
1: Thanks, Hassan. Thank
2: uh, you.
1: T- Yeah, I agree. The... Revolutionary Left is the memory of the class, so it's great to look back at some of those memories that you have of actually participating in one of the most inspiring revolutions um, in the last couple of decades. So thanks for being with
2: us. Now, the pleasure is all mine, comrades, and I hope that we stay in touch and that we exchange information, we exchange updates, and we try to coordinate our actions because at the end of the day, a defeat for us in Egypt is a defeat for you in Australia. And if you manage to score any victory in Australia, that will also be a victory for us in Egypt. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Red Flag Radio. If you want to follow more of Hassan's writings, uh, check out the show notes for his blog. Uh, there's also some articles on the amazing uh, revolutions and revolts that we've talked about uh, from Red Flag and the Marxist Left Review.
1: Yeah, and please subscribe to Red Flag Radio wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, become a Patreon supporter for lots of exclusive content. Well, not lots of it, but we've got one thing we're putting up there um, after this episode, which is an extended interview with our guest, Osama El hamalawi uh, That's a real treat, so make sure you subscribe. Until next time, we have a world to win.